We play for the love of the game. We coach for the love of the game. Regardless of what sport we coach, I think we might have all said this cliche. And while it may be cliche, there's an important truth. There's an important reminder for us as coaches and an important reminder for our athletes. The day we stop playing or coaching a sport for the love of it, it's the day that sport becomes more than what it is. We're just hitting a ball of yarn wrapped in cowhide with a stick, or we're shooting a leather ball through an iron hoop, or we're trying to kick a ball into a net. It's just a game and we love it, right? Or is that love dependent on winning? Because as our guest Jeff Miller today says, if it's dependent on winning, then it's not love. In today's episode, Jeff's going to share some fun and maybe less intense or less serious approaches to the mental game and how the old cliche for the love of the game, uh, the, the simple fact of we play the game because we love it, how that may be the key to pulling a player or a team out of a slump. Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast brought to you by Thrive on Challenge. I'm JP Nurbin, joined by my friend and co-host Nate Sanderson. Each week in about 30 minutes, we discuss important principles and strategies of transformational leadership. At Thrive on Challenge, we help coaches to raise the standards and strengthen the relationships in their program because we know this type of culture produces better leaders, better people, and better results. To learn more about how we can help you, go to thriveonchallenge.com, where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter and get the coaching notes to every episode of this podcast. So Jeff, one of the things that you said earlier that really stuck with me was this principle or idea that just because you have great information doesn't mean the players are going to listen or hear you. And you realized early on you have only a few minutes, heck, even a few seconds to really capture their attention. So I'd like to dive into another unique way that you help to connect with athletes when you're working with them to develop the mental skills. And that's something I think we can all use ourselves. And that's movies, right? Or more popular for today, I think it's you know TV shows like you know Netflix shows. But how do, how do you use something common and shared like movies to develop the mental skills of the athletes that you work with? So, you know, it's funny is my first thought when you say that now is it's not working as well now because I feel like I'm starting to be the old guy showing the movies <laughs> that nobody's seen. <laughs> um, so like even, you know, the my favorite one that we did in in that I wrote about in the book was was taking clips from the Matrix and, and really turning that into a, a team program. And um, I, I still do that today, but I'll show clips and, and, you know, one of my players said, oh, my dad really loves that movie. And I'm like, man, it's, it, maybe I've been doing this too long. Um, but so um, I think the idea is simply it gets back to knowing who I am. Um, when I started doing this, I was around some really good people who were really good presenters. And I felt a lot of pressure to be a good presenter as well because I was sharing the, you know, quote unquote stage with them as we were doing workshops or, or, or doing team programs. And I really, it took me a couple of years to find my own voice. And doing that really just got me to, to think about, okay, well, how do I see this concept 
I don't want to talk about it like it's a college lecture. Um, I, I want to make this fun. I want to make it interesting and entertaining, and I want to make it something that, that people are going to identify with. And I have, you know, I, for whatever reason, I have always loved to quote movies and, and, you know, it's kind of become the language of, uh, the people that I hang out with. And, and I'm amazed to see my children doing it without really any coaching from me. My, my seven-year-old, uh, was, was saying things in his high chair when he was barely talking and we were kind of going, wait, what, what is that? And, um, it, he was like quoting word, quotes from frozen. And, and so, um, maybe there is something genetic to it, but, but I always felt like that, that was a big part of who I was that, that I wanted to have fun and I wanted to, to really simplify some of these concepts and, and make them more relatable. And, and so that's really what, what map sessions were about. Well, that's awesome to take such a creative approach. And I think that's one of the challenges, no matter you know what your function is in a, working with a team is to try to be as engaging as possible. And it's, it's awesome to see you using some of those creative approaches. You know, one of the other things you talked about in your book was, was the kangaroo court and the value of that uh, in the locker room or in the clubhouse in baseball for a team. And uh, I wonder if you could just, you know, maybe not everyone that's listening to this has a background in, in baseball, but you want to kind of describe, first of all, what is a kangaroo court and <laughs> what is the benefit of that for a team? So kangaroo court is this very time-honored tradition of um, getting together as a team having your oldest or, or, you know, kind of veteran players become judges. Um, it doesn't have to be players either. We did kangaroo court with our staff uh, and, and we do that actually every, it's, it's probably the highlight of the year um, in the Phillies organization is, is we have a staff member who's a judge, you know, our judge and um, you know, we make a whole night of this thing. And, and so um, it's a time-honored tradition in baseball to get together, and um, during you know the week or the month, you have a a fine box. And so, if I see I didn't pick up someone's glove and bring it out to the outfield, um, you know, between innings, and I made him run all the way back in and and get his glove, well, that's that's going to be something I'm going to write up a little fine, and I'm going to stick it in the fine box. And at Kangaroo Court, they're gonna they're gonna read that. So. There are those kinds of things, and then it's the the kind of stuff that you would imagine happens in a clubhouse. That you know, it it usually takes on a much more colorful kind of a tone. Um, and and some people are very good at at catching people in in gotcha moments, and and it's it's a fun time for everyone. But um, so so just the the camaraderie of that, just the the community of it, I think is good. But what I wrote about and what I realized uh, about kangaroo court that I think really gets to a lot of the team building kind of concepts that we're talking about to me, accountability is one of the biggest ones that everyone preaches accountability. Everyone expects accountability and says, we've got to hold each other accountable. But then when someone does something on the field or, or, you know, on the court in, in a game that everyone knows was wrong and then no one wants to confront their teammate because they don't want to show them up or they don't want to start a fight or they don't want to make them angry. But kangaroo court is this very natural way to be able to hold people accountable and to be able to call people out. And so I think the practice of calling people out and having it be safe and having it be that the recipient doesn't react and it doesn't turn into this grudge that's held. I, I think just the, the practice of hearing some kind of criticism, even if it's a joke, 
um, I, I think is a good thing. I'm so glad we brought up the kangaroo court because that was something that I absolutely loved when I was coaching in Ireland. We would take trips abroad with our team. One of my assistant coaches, he was a, a, from rugby culture, very popular in Europe. And I kind of forgot about it until I read your book. And it, honestly, for us, it was just a fun way to bring about accountability and to address certain behaviors that were unacceptable. And, and most of the time it was funny and you know, we, we made a joke of it. But there was also these moments where we would, we would shift the kangaroo court to, court to more serious infractions. Um, can you talk a little bit about your character development inventory? That was something that you talk about in the book that I think is really, really important because we're always talking um, at Thrive on Challenge about assessing character um, and putting that as a part of the talent equation, not just you know, their athletic ability or uh, their technical or their tactical skills. Okay. Well, so um, I'll start by saying the character development inventory, it's not exactly scientific. It's not meant to actually diagnose someone's character traits. Um, it's much more of an educational tool. But I think what we wanted to do was help people. One, we wanted to be able to have agreeing on terms. Right. So if I said to you, do you think that you uh, are uh, resilient? You might go, oh, yeah, I'm resilient. And I go, well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, and, and so I think part of it was defining the term. Um, and if I ask 10 different coaches what it means to be resilient, I might get 10 different answers. So for us, it was meant to say, OK, well, we talk about these intangible qualities all the time. Let's let's come up with some behaviors that would actually show someone that they were being those qualities and that they could ask themselves and, and think about on, on a regular basis. And so that was really the, the, the idea behind it was to organize the thinking on what intangibles were important to us and then how to measure them and how to teach and, and, uh, kind of monitor them uh, on a regular basis. So if someone said, uh, I'm not feeling confident today, you could say, well, um, you know, do you believe in yourself? Do you think you're going to be a big leaguer still? Yes. Okay. Well, what's not confident about that? Right? Like, so I think, I think it's a good way to, to help people um, have some, some real questions that they can ask themselves um, to see if they're doing enough on, on any of those kinds of uh, factors. Well, I think that tool is so useful because it, number one, as you said, it, it creates a common language so that you can communicate with a player. You know, when you're using the word, like, as you said, resilient or somebody that has grit, you know, and a player doesn't necessarily understand, you know, what that is, let alone what it looks like. Um, just having an inventory or something that can create that conversation must, must be valuable, you know, just for the relationship and their process of self-discovery. Yeah. And, and again, I think it eliminates a lot of confusion when you can make that part of your coaching culture. And, and the, the example that I've used quite a, but a, a lot in, in presentations is uh, the word aggressive. And so that word gets thrown around by coaches a lot. Um, and coaches can see when someone's being aggressive and when they're being passive. And they're amazing at, at knowing what, what people are thinking sometimes. But um, I had a conversation with a player one time and he said, you know, he, he was really out of sorts because he wasn't pitching well and he wasn't pitching well because he wasn't throwing strikes. And I said, well, what's going on? And he says, 
well, they're telling me to, they want me to be more aggressive. And I go, well, do you know what that means? He says, no. <laughs> and so uh, I go, well, what are you doing then? He goes, well, I'm just trying to look angry and throw harder. And I go, well, how's that working? And he's like, well, it's not working at all. Now I can't throw strikes. Right. And now they're telling me, well, we want you to work on your command. So now they're telling him something completely different anyway. So he's confused. And I said, well, did you know that most of the time when they want you to be more aggressive, they just want you to pitch inside more? He's like, no. Why didn't they just tell me to pitch inside more then? I said, I don't know. But, but that happens a lot. And, and you hear this term a lot when coaches are talking. They go, well, we addressed it. Right? Addressed it means I told you something. It doesn't mean that you understood it. Right? And so uh, all of that kind of went into to this discussion about character that if we're going to tell someone we want them to be aggressive, we need to explain what it means to be aggressive in an actual behavior so they know what to do. Um, and, and so especially in that example, this guy wasn't a very aggressive personality, but if you just told him pitch inside more, he could do that without changing who he is. Well, Jeff, I'm going to change gears a little bit here in our conversation. And uh, as you you may be aware or may not be aware, but uh, the majority of our uh, audience here is high school and college coaches. And JP and I spend a lot of our time mentoring individual coaches during their seasons and helping them through some of their challenges. And I wondered if I could just give you some things that we hear about and get questions about a lot when it comes to some of the mental aspects of the game. And this isn't just specific to baseball, but certainly can be applied to a lot of the situations that we hear from other coaches as well. Um, and the first one, I'm going to I'm gonna share a little personal story here with you quickly. I hope you can appreciate. But uh, my wife and I moved out into the country. We live just outside of town, as I said, in eastern Iowa. And uh, when we bought this acreage, my vision was to build a wiffle ball field in our yard. And so uh, first couple of summers, we bulldozed the hill in our yard. We built a wall. Now we've got stands and seating and gazebos and the whole deal, right? And so in the summertime, we host tournaments in our yard to raise money for charity. And we have these trophies and it's kind of become, especially our Labor Day tournament, kind of a big deal, right? We have teams that come back every year to compete to get on the on the trophy. So in 2016, we have our Labor Day Classic championship game. We play four inning games and the team that is in the field, um, it has a two run lead in the game. And the third baseman who had been playing great throughout the tournament up to that point. It's the first pitch hit to him, and it, he bobbles it through his legs, and the guy gets on. And you can see him kind of kick the dirt a little bit. You know, he's a little bit frustrated with himself. The next batter flies out to left field, so there's one out. The next batter comes up, hits another ground ball to the third baseman, goes right through his legs, right through the wickets. So now we're first and second, and uh, you know what's going to happen next, right? There's a three-run homer, and they end up losing the game, you know, in, in extra innings. And so you see this happen a lot where one mistake compounds into multiple mistakes, you know, in a hurry sometimes. And I wonder, you know, just if there's something you can share with our coaches about how do you approach an athlete, not necessarily in that moment, although if you have something there, that'd be great. But how do we prepare athletes for those moments so that one mistake doesn't become a slew of mistakes? This kind of gets to a, a different concept, but I think it's the right time to talk about it is um, there is a chapter in the book called The Job Paradox, and it's about playing ping pong. And so this third baseman, my guess is if he was playing ping pong with that hitter, 
in a ping pong tournament back at the, you know, at the hotel after this baseball tournament. And, uh, you know, he hit three balls in a row right off the table or right into the net. He probably wouldn't get so worked up about that. Right. Um, it, it, it's a skill just like catching a ground ball is a skill. Um, and he's probably better at catching a ground ball than he is at ping pong. But if he's doing something for fun and he makes a mistake, it doesn't bother him. Because he has his whole identity, which is kind of where we started some of this conversation, right, about my personal identity is wrapped up in I'm a baseball player and I'm a third baseman and I can't ever make a mistake. Then when I do that on a, on a simple ground ball, then everybody's watching me and now I'm aware that everybody realizes that I should have fielded that and then it, it becomes something that it's not, right? It's a mistake. We all make them. Um, and, I, and so if you can understand and I think go into every athletic contest, every single game you're playing, feeling like I'm, you know, again, it's cliche. I'm just going to go out here and have fun, right? But how often do we see athletes putting so much pressure on themselves and not having fun doing the thing that they're best at? So I, I think it's difficult. Like, it's not easy to communicate that you know, in the middle of an inning between ground balls through the legs. But I think if, if that's what we're teaching people, then I think, you know, the first of those errors maybe doesn't turn into three in a row. I appreciate that. And I think a related question that we get from coaches a lot is, you know, when an individual or when a team kind of goes through a crisis in confidence, you know, maybe it's not in such a narrow window of a half inning, but, you know, I think about my basketball season last year, the first seven games of the year, we shot 30% from the field. You know, the year before that, with almost all the same players, we shot 45 to 50% in most games. You know, and sometimes when the ball doesn't go in, the ball doesn't go in, you know, it becomes hard to convince yourself that the ball is going to go in. What kind of mm -hmm. tips can you give to coaches when their team is kind of facing a crisis in confidence? Uh, I think it's the same theme to me that um, they're the same players, right? It's they have shooting ability, they can shoot better, right? So the question I would be asking is what's different, right? Why are we so tense right now? Why, is, why are we focused so much on the misses instead of just playing, right? And so I, I think any kind of slump that someone's in, um, whether it's a person or a team, I think the way out of that slump is to do something that is not related to your sport and, and do it for fun and see how easily your hands work and your feet work and your skills work when you're not doing it to be the best, quote unquote. When you're just doing it because you want to win because it's fun, then you can kind of unlock those skills again. Well, another thing that we, we get questions a lot, and this might be related to that idea of, you know, we want our players to go out and have fun, enjoy the game, be present in the moments. But there are times when, you know, players can be sort of swallowed up by the struggle. And I know just, you know, the course of, course of my career, you know, one of the criticisms sometimes is leveled at coaches is that, well, my daughter and my son played for you and lost their love of the game, you know, as though mm -hmm. it's, it's the context or it's the coach's, you know, fault that, they don't love the game anymore, you know, and I think most of the time it's either because they weren't getting what they wanted or they encountered a struggle that they couldn't get through. But how do how do you approach players that are kind of struggling with finding that place of enjoyment again? Yeah, I, I mean, it's 
unfortunately very common now. Um, and I, I really think it gets, starts with like, why are you doing this in the first place? Right. And what are you trying to prove? What are you trying to accomplish? Um, but I think that was, those would be the kinds of questions I would ask is why are you doing this? What do you want? Do you, are you, are you playing high school basketball because you want to play in college? Are you playing high school basketball because you want to be in the NBA someday? Um, are you playing high school basketball because you love the sport and you want to be absolutely the best or you want to win a state championship or, you know, I think everything, any answer is fine. Those are all fine. Um, but ultimately I think this, this kind of gets back to how the book ends that we all say that we're playing sports because it teaches great life lessons, right? So if we're quitting the game because we don't love it, we don't get to quit life, right? Because we don't love it. And there's plenty of things that we don't love in our lives. So I think if, if we're thinking about, okay, I'm doing this because I love it more than anything, but I only love it if I'm winning, right? I mean, I think that's a good question to ask people. Do you only love playing when you're winning? Do you only love playing when you're making shots? Um, because that doesn't sound like love to me, right? So I, I think those are the kinds of questions that I'd be asking. Oh, that's good. And I don't think players encounter those questions, you know, certainly in their own self-awareness or self-reflection and probably aren't hearing them in a lot of other contexts as well. You know, and I think sometimes one of the things that we've tried to experiment with a little bit, too, is anticipating that struggle is part of the game. You know, I think about baseball as an example where it's it's a team sport, but there's so much individual activity where you know who struck out, you know who walked the batter, you know who made the error. You know, it's a series of individual plays. And I think sometimes trying to be able to prepare players, as you said before, that mistakes are going to happen. You know, there's going to be times where your love for the game is challenged. And who do you want to be in those moments? You know, who do we want to be as a team can be, be a powerful way to address those as well. Yeah, there's there's a you know, there's a fun book that was written by John Gruden and it was called, do you love football? Um, and it's, it's, it's definitely not a challenging read. You can, you can get through it quickly. It's got some great lessons in it. And the, the title of the book is, is comes out of, I forget which AFC, I think it was the AFC championship, maybe that they lost to the Patriots, but um, when he was the Raiders coach and um, regardless of which game it was, they lost in the playoffs. And the next morning, you know, Gruden has like slept in his office and, and he's, he's down. And one of his coaches comes walking in the complex and he's just booming and he's going, do you love this? You love football, don't you? You love it. You're, you're here today and we love this game, even though we lost it, you know, and, and um, I'm probably butchering some of the details of the story, but I, I think that's, um, it was something very powerful that, um, you know, you love the challenge and you love trying to win and you try to win every single time that, that you're playing and you don't always get to win. And, and, you know, the other, I think example of that, Freddie Gonzalez is an incredible person. He was the manager of the Atlanta Braves for the time that I was with the Braves. And, um, he's been in baseball his whole life and, and he and I are very close friends. And I remember my very first Braves game, it was, the first spring training game of 2011, Bobby Cox had just retired in 2010. So Freddie Gonzalez is the man asked to replace 
a Hall of Fame legend, Bobby Cox. Um, and by the way, right, we start this whole podcast with me telling this story about hearing about sports psychology by, you know, hearing about the Braves in the World Series. And then 20 years later, I'm working for the Braves and I'm sitting next to Bobby Cox. Um, and so I am grateful for those kinds of things. But the first day of spring training, you know, first game of spring training, we lose the game and Freddie goes to do his press conference. And the first reporter says something like, well, Freddie, what happened out there? And Freddie goes, you know, the other team's trying to win too. And it was so simple. It, like it didn't bother him at all. He just went, well, they're trying to beat us and we're trying to beat them. And sometimes they do it and sometimes we do it. Right. It was just so casual. And, and I've never heard it explained that simply and without any emotion at all. I've heard Bill Belichick say many times that the other team has good players, too. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's important to remember. I'd like to finish with this question, Jeff, because I know there's a lot of listeners out there that are maybe older coaches, but there's a lot of younger coaches. And that is you've kind of had a storybook career. I mean, you started, you, you weren't, you know, uh, as you mentioned the book and you mentioned today, you weren't a big time player. Uh, but you had an English teacher, plant a few seeds, got this idea to go be a mental performance coach, and you've been all over the place. You've worked with some of the best players in baseball. What is the most fulfilling part of your job working for the Phillies as their mental skills coach? It's funny because I, I just talked about this yesterday with someone. Um, it it doesn't change from team to team. It doesn't change from athlete to athlete. and it. it it really doesn't matter if I'm with the Phillies or not, or if I'm in Major League Baseball or not. It's the reward um, of seeing someone get it or hearing it in their voice that they that they do understand themselves and they do understand what they want, and now they know how to go get it. Um, and that reward of, of that kind of enlightenment that um, someone has on their face and in the way that they walk when... Uh, they know what they didn't know uh, the day before, uh, I think is the, the biggest reward for me. And it's the reason that I keep doing it because I absolutely love helping people find that moment. I got to ask you one more question. Now you're, you've got a seven-year-old and a four-year-old and there, you may end up speaking today through on this podcast to one of their future coaches. They may hear something. What, uh, message do you have that you think is really every coach out there needs to hear that's that's coaching uh, youth today that from, from your experience of being around the game that that might be able to um, help them to become a better coach and, and better serve uh, all young people including your own your own sons um i, I guess I, I have two thoughts there i think one is to to ask that same question of yourself that you, that you'd ask of the players right do you do you love doing this even when you lose, um, and and why are you doing it in the first place? And and um, a reminder that you are teaching life lessons, and that these people are going to remember you. Right there, are, there are plenty of John Kerwins out there for each of us that that we remember our first little league coach, and we remember our high school basketball coach. We re- they're important people in our lives. Um, so hopefully, that's what most coaches are doing it for, is because they love helping people um, develop these skills on the field or on the court, but, but also off the, the field and the court. Um, and then I, I guess one thing that I would want to just communicate that I think I hear a lot that I don't like when I hear it is uh, physical mistakes happen 
but there's no excuse for mental mistakes. I 100% disagree with that. Um, <laughs> and I would love for that to be changed. Um, your brain is a part of your body and you're, no one is perfect, right? And so I don't know why people expect that your thought process will always be perfect, um, that you can always control every thought that you have and you can always control every action that your brain tells your hands to do or be in the right situation in the right time. It is impossible to be 100% mentally in the same way it's impossible physically. And I think it's a double standard. Thanks so much to Jeff for coming to the podcast. If you want to not only help your players in the middle game, but just to become a better coach, check out Intangibles. It's a really, really good book. I'm not a baseball guy, but I really enjoyed it. Some great stories as well as some great practical applications. I'm going to put a link to Intangibles in the episode details, as well as in the coaches coaching notes in our weekly newsletter. Be sure to subscribe or head on over to thriveonchallenge.com to learn more about the work we are doing at TOC to support coaches.